Anybody hear what I said? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but he's like a racehorse, you know, in, in a spiritual racehorse. He's in the, 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 the starting gate. The, the doors have closed behind him. And he's, he's there, and he's waiting for the bell to ring. And as soon as that bell rings, he's eager to go out and begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm ready to preach the gospel. And so he did. That's what he did. He, be, he began immediately telling us of all the, the, the things that God has done on our behalf. For example, he opens up by, by telling us in Romans that uh, sin is universal. There isn't a country or person ever born that wasn't under the burden of sin. And all of mankind stands condemned. That's the state that man finds himself in. And so, what hope then, you know, this is the next question, what hope is there for mankind if, if, if they're in the state of sin that they can't get themselves out of? And they stand guilty and condemned before God. And the answer is God. God in His wonderful sovereignty and His grace and His mercy uh, before the foundation of the world. He moves right into the next doctrine he talks about, justification by faith. And the work of Christ. He came. He died for the ungodly. He, his sin was imputed. Our sin was imputed to Christ. Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. And through faith in Christ alone, we stand justified before God. Verse 9 says, For as many as one man's for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many were made righteous. And of course, that, that would open up later in the book the question, well, does that mean we can just go out and do whatever we want? I mean, after all, if, uh, if God has, has saved us, if He's forgiven us of our sins, it's all of Him, it's all of grace, it's just nothing we have done, then if we believe in Christ, then are we free to go off and live however we choose to live? Uh, and then, of course, chapter 6 opens up with, God forbid, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. Or, no, no, no. May it never be. And we see that our union with Christ is our union with Him in His death, our union with Him in His resurrection, and we are no longer slaves to sin. Verse 17 of chapter 6 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. But now you have been set free from your sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit of which uh, you get leads to sanctification and to eternal life. Now, there's a lot more in the first 11 chapters of, uh, of Romans, but that's, that's the heart of it. That's the gospel. Now, that's who we are in Christ because of all that He's done on our behalf. And so when we come to chapter 12, we actually come to a change or a shift in the whole book. And what we have is doctrine being taught for the first 11 chapters, the doctrine of the gospel. And then also we see when we come to chapter 12, the shift now turns to our duty before God in light of what Christ has done. So the question is, and we're going to look at this morning, is, is then how are we to live? 
How do we live the Christian life in light of all that Christ has done for us by grace? And we're going to see that uh, we saw last time, cha uh, chapter 12, verse 1, he, 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 answered, he begins to answer the question. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How are we to live our life as believers in Christ? We are to offer our body up as a living sacrifice. Uh, how do you do that? You know, the imagery that comes up is laying your bodies down on a, you know, and, and getting ready to be burned up on an altar, but how do we offer our bodies up and our whole being up as a spiritual sacrifice? And the answer really comes in verse 2 that we're going to see today. He's going to begin to answer that question. He's going to answer by, by one don't and two do's. Very simple. One don't and two do's. One don't be conformed to the world, and two do's be transformed and have your mind renewed. Renew your mind. Um, let's look at the first don't. Don't be conformed to this world. Now let's stop there. We have to look at the word world, because what, what is it Paul is in really commanding us to do? The word world. You know, we know the world the word world is used different ways in the New Testament. I know, for example, it's used to talk about terra firma, this blue marble that we're on, the world, this planet. It's used to refer to people in a broad sense. It's used to refer to people in a very narrow sense, in an elective sense. But the word cosmos here is not the word that Paul is using. Instead, he's using the word in, which is uh, age. Did any of your translations say age instead of world? I, just, I didn't look them all up to see. In other words, don't, get, don't be conformed to this age that we live in. Uh, there's two ages. There's the age to come. There's the age of today that we're in. There's this present age. There's an eternal age. The present age is temporal. And so there's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world. And he says, don't, don't be conformed to the kingdom of this world. And so this world has its, has its uh, own peculiarities. It has its own prince, its own ruler. Subruler. I mean, that's one ruler, but one one prince. Second Corinthians four four says, in their in their case, the god of this world has blinded their minds. So you see, there's there, there's an over prince over over this whole world system, and uh, this world's marked by evil. First Corinthians two six. Yet among the mature, we we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age. Uh, Galatians 1.4 says, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. And so this world that we're talking about, this, this, uh, uh, this system that we have today, uh, this, this temporal, it's evil. It has Satan as its overall arching sub-ruler. God is the ultimate ruler. And it's temporal. It's just passing away. This world is passing away. 1 Corinthians 7.31 says, And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, 
For this present form, for this world is passing away. It's not eternal. So the system, this worldly system that we find ourselves in today, this side of glory is temporary. It's passing away. And so this world has its fashions. This world has its dress. This world has its language, its words that it uses. It has the songs that it sings. This world has the entertainment that uh, to entice us with. It has its literature. There's a system that, that, that we find ourselves in. It's everything around us, this side of heaven. Now, I, I don't know if this illustration works or not for you, but in my funny mind, it, it does, and so bear with me. I liken this world to Disneyland. Uh, I work there in college. I, I know it backstage, front stage. I know Disneyland in and out. But I know when you walk through the, the, the Golden Gates going into Disneyland, you're entering, you're entering another world. I mean, you've got Frontierland, Tomorrowland. You've got Adventureland. And when you, once you get inside, you forget you're in the middle of Orange County. You're in this world. And you go inside, you see it has its dress. There's people dressed different than the way they do outside. They see it, they have its music. You hear the, the music playing. You know, it's a... It's a world, is it? It's a small world. And you look at it and you realize this is all passing away. This isn't real. I'm not a citizen of Disneyland. I'm just passing through as a tourist. I'm just on my way through this. I'm observing, watching, listening, but I'm not a, a citizen of this temporal place called Disneyland. And, and try and picture that in the sense of, a, on a broader sense, the world system around us being a spiritual Disneyland that we find ourselves in. This isn't the real thing. It has its own language. It has its own priorities. It has, it has its own... Uh, uh, songs and music and entertainment. Uh, everything about it is, is contrary to the kingdom of God. And yet we're, we're here living in this world as believers. We, we, we're talking today about worldliness. That is, when we enter into this world as believers, waiting for our heavenly future kingdom, entering into the presence of Christ face to face, this world that we're in we can easily get into it, just like in the Disneyland, and begin to say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going to live here. I'm not leaving Disneyland. I mean, I'm in here, and I'm going to sleep here and eat here, and this is going to become my new home, the spiritual Disneyland. And as Christians, this is where we're tempted to be. We're tempted to say, this is it. This is our home. This is our spiritual Disneyland. And we forget that we're, king, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. We forget that we're just passing through. We, we, we forget that, uh, uh, that if, at best, we're, we're only there to camp out. And, uh, and that life of this world should not bleed over into us. And when it does, we, we become what's called worldly Christians. Believers in Christ that have taken on the world that we find ourselves in rather than being separated from it. You know, I looked through a lot of definitions this past week for worldliness, and I found a couple that uh, I thought were the better of all of them, but uh, one was a little longer, one short. 
But, but here's what worldliness is. This is what we're concerned about today. Worldliness is friendship with or use of anything which God and his standards are militantly, have militantly excluded. It's going beyond modesty and moderation in possessions, luxuries, or in the concern for appearance to get happiness from others and approval from the world itself. So there's a longer definition. Here's a short one that I found in the magazine Sword and Trowel. And this is right blunt and to the point. Worldliness is consorting with the enemy. So that's an easy definition to remember. We're in the enemy's territory, and when you live a worldly life, you are consorting with the enemy. The article goes on to say it includes covetousness, vainglory, undue thirst for recognition or honor or possessions. It's seen in the extravagances of self-indulgence. It flourishes when believers are chiefly devoted to the affairs of this life and chiefly intent on this life. When distinct styles of the world system that are against God are adopted by God's people. And so that becomes another kind of added expression of worldliness. So the question I want to ask ourselves this morning is, is what is our relationship to this world that we're in? Uh, how are we to live in this spiritual Disneyland? And Paul simply says, desist. Don't be conformed. Don't be conformed. Uh, how do you offer your life as a sacrifice to God? Don't be conformed to this world. And notice this is a negative command. It's uh, Paul rarely. Uh, he, there's a few imperatives that come out of Paul. But he, he's, he's not a strong user of commands and imperatives in his writing. He likes instead to exhort or encourage beseech. But this is a, not only a command, this is a negative command to us. And I know a lot of us don't like negative commands. We don't like commands, period. But let alone a negative command. Don't do something. But keep in mind that the, the Decalogue was written with, with, with eight don'ts and two do's. The Bible is filled with prohibitions. Uh, the first family in Genesis uh, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he's addressing the nature of our heart about sin, and he's telling us to stop doing something and, and stop being conformed to this world. And uh, it's a negative. It, it, it's really a command to desist immediately. Now, what does it mean to be conformed? How do we stop being conformed? What does the world conform mean? And uh, notice that the, it, it, it's contrasted in the same verse with the word transformed. So you got two, you got conformed and transformed in verse two. Uh, conformity really talks about our outward appearance. Transformation, but be transformed, speaks of our inward change of heart. So you see the outward and the inward here. Don't take on the outward form of this world that's around you. And that's where Paul starts, on the outward. Don't be like the world that's around us. 
if your inward parts are right, if the transformation's taken place, it works its way out outwardly in the way that we live. So the inward transformation, the outward take care of yourself. And this, by the way, looking at the grammar of the word uh, don't be uh, conformed, uh, first of all, it's an imperative, so it's a command of God. It's uh, don't be conformed, don't be pressured. The idea is don't be squeezed by this world. Um, feel like you're, we're in a tube and, you know, don't let the world squeeze you and come out looking like itself. You know, you think of the POWs that end up in, in these terrible prisons and one of the things they want to do, they want people to talk, they want people to, to tell, and, and so they'll torture a prisoner. And the way they torture him is they pressure him and pressure him and pressure him. And they pressure him to the point where finally they conform. They speak. They do what the, uh, the enemy wants them to do. And in a spiritual sense, that's what's going on every day in our life. We're being squeezed. We're being pressured. We're being pressed upon to become like, conform to the image, the shape, the outward appearance of the world that we find ourselves in. And so what are some of those pressures? I, you know, if you think about in your own life, what are some of those pressures every day that you find yourself feeling? In other words, you, you, you understand what these pressures are like. You know, you might feel them as parents. You might feel them as husbands. You might feel them as wives. You might feel them as young people in, in school. You, you know, every place we go in this world, whatever land we're, we're moving from and between, we feel the pressures of this world. I mean, you, you see them with uh, the media, with the magazines, with TV, with the internet, with, with songs, with billboards, with, I don't care what it is, there's input coming in to shape you. And you're blasted by it every single day of your life. You know, by the way, as an example of school, uh, I was talking to a parent recently who said that uh, the teacher was going off talking about uh, how important it is to be pro-choice. And, and this is in a high school class. And so the teacher said, let's stand up. Every, all the students, let's stand up. And all of you children who are pro-choice, you go stand against this wall. And all you children who are pro-life, you go stand on that wall. Now, is that pressure or what? I mean, that's peer pressure, isn't it? You get all your, I mean, let's say in your heart of hearts, oh, I'm pro-life. But wait a minute, I'm the only one standing here. All the rest of the class is over there. And I gotta walk all the way to that wall and stand there by myself? That's pressure. It's pressure to conform into the shape or the image of the world around us. Um, the pressure is there constantly, and the erosion that takes place is, is gradual, but it's continual in our life, unless it's checked. Sometimes you don't even realize that pressure is affecting you. Have you ever heard of the 10-year rule or 5-year rule, depending on how old you are? Uh, you know, is your priorities, is your morality, is your walk with God the same as it was five years ago as there had been a declension? More than likely, in areas in our life, there has been some declension, and if that oftentimes is a result of the daily pressures of this world slowly, slowly squeezing and conforming us into the shape of this world. You're born into a system that's contrary to your walk with Christ. Uh, 
I'll give you an example. Young people, you know, if you, if you watch any TV at all, the average youth, young person in, in America, uh, during their childhood will see 2,000 ads for alcoholic beverages. Okay? That's, forget all the debate about alcohol and drinking and all that. No, that's not the point. The point in, instead is this. You can come to this world, and, and, and in that one little small area, just on TV alone, not that they're billboards and everything else that you see, ball games and all, all the banners that are there, 2,000 ads encouraging, making it fun, and this is, this is what's cool, this is what we do, to drink. And is it any wonder that you, know, that you wouldn't be slowly shaped or conformed into the image of the pressure of this world? Uh, what pressure you felt is on, how about parenting? I'm sure you feel pressure as parents on how you raise your children. And this world's very clear. Open any magazine, watch anything on YouTube about parenting, uh, you know, any books that are coming out. And if you have any, any conviction at all about corporally punishing your child, you, you are barbaric. And this, 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 this culture will pound on you day in and day out that you're barbaric, that you're abusive. And so all of a sudden the pressure is so strong. You say, yeah, but I, I look at scripture and, and yet you begin to, I, gotta, I need to change. I need to soften things. And maybe time out is a better approach than, than a good spanking on the bottom. You know, there's pressures of sports. Uh, pressures and materialism. Uh, the, the, the world system around you and me is, is to basically pressure you to be not satisfied with anything. You watch any ad, you don't even realize it. Just watch any ad on TV, get any advertisement in the mail. It's, it's, it's to say, buy this, you need this. This is no, to be happy, you've got to have the latest, the best, and, and the newest. And pretty soon you begin to feel the pressure. And that creates a very materialistic mindset, even for believers. I mean, I get credit card uh, letters every day in the mail. Not every day, <coughs> regularly. Uh, 100,000 free air miles for this new credit card. Man, I could fly to Hawaii, take my wife with me, and all I gotta do is take out this card, and it's only $99 a year or whatever, and oh, the interest rate's only 23%, and I think, oh, this sounds like a good deal. I'm hammered with this, and hammered with this, and they know that, you know, you didn't send it in the first time, but I'm gonna pressure you, and pressure you, and pressure you, until you finally send it in. Those are the kind of pressures that we feel every, every day. Um, Romans 8, 29 says, yeah, we are to be pressured, we are to be conformed, but not in the image of the world. We are to be conformed in the image of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to do what? To be conformed, there's the same word again, uh, to the image of Jesus Christ, his son. You know, this worldliness that creeps into our lives because of... of uh, living in this world um, has a, a really detrimental effect on our Christian life. I mean, if, you're, if you're a worldly Christian, it, it, it's going to impact the way you, you walk the Christian walk. I think a good example, really a very graphic example, is that of Lot in the Old Testament. 
Lot was a man of God. He was a Christian. I mean, He's a Christian. He was saved. He was a righteous man. In fact, two time, or three times in 2 Peter, he's called a righteous man. So we're not questioning his relationship to God at all. But he chose to pitch his tent, or, you know, towards Sodom. And then it wasn't much longer after that, he said, I'm going to go into the gates and I'm going to live here. And now I'm going to sit with the, uh, the leaders of, the, of, of Sodom and gather at the gates and talk with the men about all the, the things of the world. And apparently the allurement of that city drew him in. The worldliness of that city drew him in, even as a, a righteous man. Could have been the nightlife, could have been the entertainment, could have been all the stuff that's going on. The concerts, whatever they had going on in Sodom. But it took a toll on his life. I mean, you read the whole story of, of Lot, and you, you begin to see that it infected his Christian witness. I mean, I don't know how much he witnessed. It doesn't say, but I know this, that when judgment finally came on Sodom, there wasn't anyone that was converted. So he had, didn't have a saving effect on the community. Uh, the lack of light, a lack of testimony... I mean, the general rule is if you're a worldly Christian, people will not come to Christ through you. God will use another means. You're a person where the salt has lost its savor. Secondly, it affected Lot's life and his family. You know, when the wrath was finally poured out upon the city by God, what happened to his wife? She turned, went back. Why? Even though she was warned not to, she went back, and when she went back, she was turned to a pillar of salt. Uh, it's interesting. Our Lord says, remember Lot's wife. You know, I, I don't think she was a believer. I don't think she... She was worldly, but I don't believe, I don't believe she was a, a believer. The sons mocked him. They mocked a worldly father-in-law, son-in-law. Daughters used... The sinful practice and teaching an example of a worldly father to seduce him in drunkenness and immorality. I mean, this is a shipwreck of a man, but yet he's a saved man. He's a Christian man. Worldly, worldly parents rarely have godly children. Uh, Eyes of the child take in more than the ears of the child. Worldly believers rarely have effective ministries for Christ. We see that in Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, uh, we don't see him in any, any area of service for God. Those whose heart is in love with the world are usually too busy to think about serving the saints. Because my mind's out there doing all my worldly things. And so here we have a guy like Demas. 2 Tim 4.10. For Demas, you know, one of Paul's helpers in, the, in the ministry, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone away. So those who are worldly generally are people that are rolling up their spiritual sleeves and serving the body of Christ. And ultimately, a worldly person who professes faith in Christ will end up to be an enemy of God. I mean, James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world 
is enmity with God? It could reveal a heart that's absolutely opposed to God. So as long as you're living a worldly life, there can be no strong assurance of a good relationship with Christ or even a saving relationship to Christ. It is possible. A lot is a believer. You can be worldly and be a believer. But 1 John 4, 4 warns us, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or being an enemy of God? Now the remedy we see in Jeremiah 3.13 is acknowledge your guilt, acknowledge what your, your heart, acknowledge your worldliness, and, and ask for forgiveness. Confess your sins. Jeremiah says, you only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among the foreigners. Under every green tree that the Lord you have not obeyed, my voice declares the Lord. Now, if you're thinking with me, maybe you're thinking this. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I hear what you're saying, Don. I don't want to be conformed to the world. None of us want to be conformed to the world. But it's hard. It is. It's hard not to be conformed. Um, maybe you look in the mirror when you shave or you put on your, your makeup in the morning and you look there and say, ah, do I see a worldly person who professes faith in Christ? All I can tell you is this, just by way of warning, I have known good men and good women who have slowly been pressured by this world. Faithful men, faithful women. Then all of a sudden, one day, something happens, and you wonder, where in the world did that come from? I would have never expected from that person. One of my dear friends in California, in fact, uh, out, out near where you lived, out there in the, in the foothill area, and uh, I love the guy. We, we get together, we have lunches together, we drive up there. One day, I, all of a sudden, I stopped hearing from him. I find out he's not in, the, not in the ministry anymore. What happened? Well, you know, no one wants to say what happened. It was the negative. Story finally came out. That, you know, that's not very far from, from uh, Tahoe. And the gambling's just right over the hill. So he'd go, go to Tahoe and have, have lunch, get some money in the slots, lose a few dollars, come back, Maybe try craps or roulette or whatever. Anyway, it became a habit for him. He became addicted to gambling. He started gambling more, going there more, and pretty soon he, he, he didn't have any more money. And then he started taking the money from the church offering to cover his losses from the week before. And then he took his money out of his retirement plan and started spending that and losing that as well. Now all of a sudden we have this man, a faithful man of God, he said, what happened to him? His wife left him. He was, he, was, he was actually booted out of the church. What happened? Well, do you think it started on the day that he said, I don't think I'm going to go gambling? It began back with a mindset. It began back with a thought. It, it, it began by not, not a willingness to not become conformed to this world. You know, we have another friend, a faithful pastor, a guy that I would call and ask for help as far as counseling young married couples or ask for some suggestions on, on, on counseling, anything that had to do with marriage. And then one, one day I find out that he's gone. 
He disappeared. What happened to him? Well, he went on a mission trip to Cuba. He never came back. Well, I wonder if he's in jail. I wonder if the Cubans killed him. I wonder, maybe he's been martyred down there. His elders went out on a mission trip, and they began to search and go village to village, and they were kind of like little private eyes trying to find their pastor. They found him in the arms of a woman down there. And he was going back and forth to Cuba to be with this woman. This last time, he didn't come home. So he lost his wife. He lost his children. He lost his church. You say, where did all that come from? That's worldliness. Do you think one day he has decided to, the alarm went off and says, I'm going to live a worldly life and go live with some woman in Cuba. No. He started back with the mind. And the, and the mind, as we're going to see in a minute, not being renewed daily by God. Maybe you have family members that fit into that kind of a description. Once worshipped with them, you were to love them in the sense spiritually, you thought we were all simpatico, and then all of a sudden they twerk off. Uh, so you can try not to be squeezed. I believe every example I gave you, they tried not to be squeezed. But you know what? You can't do it yourself. Uh, you can't stop just being conformed. This isn't a matter of personal strength. This isn't a matter of, of being, having a strong determination that I'm not going to be a, a worldly person. It begins with God, not man. The command is to us is not be conformed, but then it says, but be what? Transformed. Something has to happen on the inside. So we see one don't, don't be conformed. Don't, don't, don't be conformed to the evil age. Don't uh, yield yourself, appealing to the redeemed will to stop it. But you need more than that. You're only passing through this life. There's two do's that we have to look at. And these are important. These, this is the heart of it, right here. Don't be transformed. Uh, or do be transformed, I'm sorry. Don't be conformed, but do be transformed. What we need is a transformation in the heart, in the life, in the mind, if in fact we're going to say no and not be conformed to this world. Uh, look at verse 2 carefully. You see conformed there. And you see the word but. Man, that's an important word with Paul. There's a contrast taking place. But be instead transformed. And the word transform, morphe, is, is a word that would speak of really uh, the essence transformation in essence. Uh, the word schema or the word for uh, conform is the word outward appearance, a scheme. And you see that in relationship to the person of Jesus. Same word, same contrast as we look at the union of God and man in Philippians 2.5. It says, have this mind in you among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form there it is, transformed, we're looking at, form, morphe, of a God, did not count an equality with God to be, to a thing to be. So, in essence, Christ is God. But he emptied himself by taking on the form, morphe, of a servant. The essence of his being is a servant. 
But it says, being born in the likeness or schema of man, he took on the outward appearance of a man. And so he's a man, appearance of a man, but his essence is God. And his essence is that of a servant, that hypostatic union. So it's not enough to just outwardly appear different from the world and, and try not to be worldly and, and try to look like a godly person. There's a lot of that stuff going on, and that's phoniness. You, know, you, you can try and say, oh, I'm not going to look like the world. I'm going to dress this way. Oh, I'm not going to do what the world does. I'm, I'm not going to go to movies. Oh, I, I, I'm not going to do what the world does. I'm not going to go to that concert. So you can try to externally conform, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. How do you do this? How does this take place in our heart? And the answer is being transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a change of mind. As you think, so you are. What goes into your mind has a direct bearing on what you do with your life. Um, today's acts in your life are the product of yesterday's thoughts and maybe a decade of thoughts before that. I got a call last night uh, and my heart was a little heavy this morning from a pastor friend who shared with me that they were going to have a baptism today in his church. He was excited. And then to find out that one of the men that was going to be baptized went out last night went to a bar, took a gun, and blew out his brains. I heard that, and I heard the pastor on the other end. I, my, I was shaken. You wonder, how could this happen? How could a guy who's excited about Christ, and, and he's going to be baptized this Sunday, and something happened last night in his heart, his mind, his actions, where he went, went to a bar, took a gun, went to the driveway, and killed himself. And then the question will do: Still have a baptism? What do we do? You know, it's, it's it just it, this church is really in mourning right right now. Do you think he woke up yesterday and just said, "Oh, I think I'll go kill, kill myself," or do you think it started before that? Do you think it started in his mind before that? Thoughts that were there. Way, go way back, perhaps. A little bit. And pretty soon, you're conforming and conforming, and then all of a sudden, you sin or you do something that's contrary to what you would do as a believer. I don't know if some of you are old enough to remember Ted Bundy. But he was one of these mass murderers, killed 50 young women. Uh, terrorized Utah, Colorado, Florida. Uh, it, was, it was a terrible thing. They finally caught the guy found him guilty, had a trial, found him guilty, gave him the death penalty. And uh, apparently, at the very end of his life, he, before he was executed, he came to faith in Christ. James Dobson uh, went with him to interview him right before the execution. And here's a quote. He said, you know, because Dob how could you have done this? How could you have brutally killed 50 young women? He said, well, it began when I was 12 years old. I was walking down the street, I saw a magazine, I picked it up, and I began to gaze on pornography for the first time. 
He says, my mind was filled with images that were sinful. But you know, after a while he says, images don't satisfy. And so impure visual things took on impure habits and thoughts. And then impure ideas. And then all of a sudden impure actions. And the impure pure actions become serial. Not just one, but 50. It would have been more if they hadn't caught him. And he was saying, you know, before he died, he says, in no way am I blaming pornography. What I'm saying is, the influences of pornography on my mind had a big impact on what I did in my life. So what does it mean for you to be transformed in the renewing of your mind? Uh, here, listen to the grammar here a little bit again. It's interesting. Transformation here is present tense. So we're talking about being continually renewed in your mind. Now you lay down your life how many times as a sacrifice, remember? One time. It's a one time. But you're continually being renewed in your mind daily. And uh, offering your body as a living sacrifice one time being transformed day in and day out throughout your life. This idea of a second blessing you hear about and you know, I got the spirit, and I don't do this anymore, and boy, once and for all, God... No, that's not how it happens. It's a daily transformation that takes place by the renewing of your mind. If you neglect your mind, and you neglect what God's given you in the mind, then you can't even imagine what might come out from your life. I mean, I, Mary and I do this. We're, I'm, I'm confessing before all of you. Many times we go home late and we're tired. And we say, let's put something stupid on TV. You ever say that? I mean, you know, uh, let's just go veg. Let's veg for an hour. You know when we say that, by the way, man, we're talking to ourselves here. But when we say that, what are we saying? Let's just turn off my mind. Let's put it in neutral. And let's let whatever comes in for an hour. It's okay. It will feel better. Well, let's go on a vacation. You know, a vacation can be a time where your mind is shut off for two weeks, a month. And it's a time where the thoughts of worldliness begin to creep in. And one day you're shocked. Where did that sin come from in my life? I thought I would never do such a thing. How did I get here? By turning off your mind to the things of God. So you ask God to forgive you, you confess your sins, you're back on track, you're in the Word, perhaps. And so that's why our Christian life oftentimes is jerky. You know, we're moving along and jerky, you know, you know we're moving along, it gets jerky. Also, this word transformations in the passive voice, which means this, that it's not that we are transforming ourselves, we're being transformed. Uh, we are by who? By God Himself. So it's not like someone else, it's not like we're transforming our but something acting on us is transforming us. And you see that in Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so God's in you, and as he's in you, what is he doing? He's working. And he's, he's working in your mind, in, in your heart, giving you a desire and, and power and the ability to live a transformed life. 
That's why it's important if there's no victory in worldliness with, without God. First, it has to begin with a saving relationship to Christ. Where God indwells you through his spirit and sanctifies you. Thirdly, this is in the imperative mood. This is kind of interesting because it's passive voice. It's something acting on us to transform us, but also we're commanded <laughs> at the same time, the imperative mood, to be tra to transform, be transforming. So this isn't a let go and let God. Let's just wait and see. I'm going to trust God. I'm a Christian. Spirit of God's in me. So I'm just going to let this God work this holiness thing out in my life. No. There's a command that goes with it. Be transformed. And God's doing the transforming. Again, you see that in Philippians 2.12, 2, where you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is in you. You've got it both working side by side. So there's a balance. Now I understand what the Jefferson Airplane probably didn't mean when they said, feed your head. This, but the idea spiritually is we are to feed our mind with, with truth. So what's the Christian life like? What does it mean to lay down your life once and for all on the altar, uh, giving yourself to God? From, uh, it begins in the heart. It begins in your heart. A renewing of the mind, as your mind is removed, being renewed, it works its way out in your hands. As it works its way out in your hands, it works its way out that you walk in this world. The reason why so many Christians are living worldly lives is because their minds are being polluted by the things of the world rather than the things of God. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. His, His grace is in us as His, as His children. Uh, and this is why so many of us, you know, we, we have trouble with discerning what's right and what's wrong. Should I do this or not do this? It's because our minds become, I believe, spiritually foggy. Uh, we don't really kind of, the lines between right and wrong become blurred. And we're trying to work out our, our life together and trying to make decisions and are they right or and so we don't see blacks and whites as clearly as perhaps they're revealed in Scripture. Now, let me just be real practical here toward the end. How do you do that? How do you renew your mind? Well, here's four or five practical steps. The reason I say four, I had four, but I think I added one on the way here. But uh, the Word of God, that's where it begins. James 17, 17 says... Sanctify them by thy truth. Right. Thy word is truth. Where does sanctification come from? By the word of God. Husbands that are being have a sanctifying influence on their wives, how's that? By bringing the word of God. And when you have the word of God coming into your mind, it reduces the fog, gives clarity to your spiritual thought, and, and helps you as far as strengthening you to walk uprightly as a believer in Christ. Because the Word will give you the mind of Christ rather than the mind of the world. And that's what we need to know is the mind of Christ. And so how do you, how do, you do that? Well, I think you, you, you make a commitment in your heart that I'm going to be present whenever God's Word is taught. Sunday morning, if it's going to be preached here, Kyle's preaching, I'm preaching, Mike's doing Sunday school, be here. Make it a priority. Why do I? Because my, not, my mind needs to be renewed. Midweek Bible study. 
What's happening midweek? Oh, we're going in the Word. Again, renewing your mind. Ladies' Bible study, what's going on there? Oh, the Word of God, renewing your mind. Men's uh, breakfast once a month, renewing your mind. And whenever the Word is, the opportunity of the Word goes out, make it a priority to be there, to have that Word come into your heart. And I know some of you are saying, well, that's not my level of Christianity right now in my life. I'm not at that stage of commitment. I'm basically a Sunday morning, church-only Christian. And even that, I'm pretty sporadic. What you're saying, Don, sounds way, way, way too hard. Well, let me challenge you to say, think, there's a lot at stake. It doesn't matter whether I'm going to sit through another hearing of the Word taught. But what's, what's at stake is your life. What's at stake is your testimony. What's at stake is, 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 is whether or not you're living a worldly life or a life that's pleasing to Christ. That's why I'm here in this, this, this isn't a pulpit, my notes say pulpit, this, this movable podium, I guess it is. This is why I'm here this morning. This is why I'm preaching the word this morning. I'm preaching the word this morning with a prayer, and I've been praying this prayer all week, that God would take his word and do a change in our hearts and our minds in our life, to be hungry to receive the word so we might be renewed daily in our Christian life and, and therefore not be conformed to the world. <coughs> Secondly, there's personal reading of the Word. Not just coming and hearing it taught or preached, but being the Word personally. Uh, Barna's study recently showed that uh, of the born-again, professing born-again believers, about 42%, less than half, read their Bible at all during the week. Not every day, but it was, it was during the week. Thirdly, meditate on the Word. Let it seep. Let it come into the recesses of your heart. Let it be a spiritual tea bag. It just, it just steeps there and permeates your heart and your life, your thoughts. Uh, this meditation, I, I, I believe, requires a certain amount of solitude and quiet. If you've got something blasting in your ear all the time, it's not steeping. But if you're taking the Word and allowing it to have some quiet time and meditate on the Word and what all that it means, and it relates to you, it's going deep into the recesses of your mind. And of course, there's also memorization. And I was surprised this last week to learn that Tim Stewart has memorized the book of Romans. Is that right? First 14 chapters. First 14. Only two more to go. Okay. Can you imagine that? I mean, Tim has memorized 14 chapters of the book of Romans. And he already knows what I've said probably isn't found in the scripture, right? No, no I'm kidding. <laughs> he is, it's already in his mind. Uh, memorization. Then Dave, you've memorized this chapter, haven't you? Yes. And any others? 5 through 12. So you guys are both up to 12. What is about 13? Is it all those names at the end, or what is it? Anyway, uh, memorize the Word of God. Uh, avail yourself of all the ordinary means of grace. 
Be in church. Encourage one another. Uh, pray for one another. Uh, serve one another. All the, the Lord's table that we're about to come to. That's one of the means God has given us. To do what? To be renewing our minds. Though Christ has done on our behalf. And then I, I would encourage you to read good Christian literature. There, there are, there's a lot of good literature outside the Bible that is profitable, that can have a renewing effect on your mind. There's biographies of godly men that have gone before us and women. There's uh, you know, some of the missionary stories. Um, you know, I read about Spurgeon, and I read about his dealing with worldliness, and I realize that was a different age. But then you guys say, well, how is his age different? You go through, it has a renewing effect on your mind. Um, anything in the area of practical Christianity for the family. And then the last one I just put is, you know, exercise your mind. It's not a passive thing that God has given us inside of our skull. Uh, this, this, is it an organ, brother? Where's my doctor brother? Is it brain organ? Okay. This organ that's inside of your skull is uh, not to be just let it go off wherever it wants to go. It should have a, a leash attached to it. And when it starts drifting and wondering and uh, imagining and it goes off in areas where it shouldn't go, we should be diligent in the use of our mind so that we're pulling that leash back. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to think that. I'm going to think on those things that are godly and pure and holy. And then lastly, we see here, this, this is the last small point of this verse 2. There is a result. A result of a transformed mind is this, that then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you want to know the will of God? Renew your mind. Be in the renewing of your mind to the Word of God. I, I believe what happens is the more that our mind is being renewed daily, the more we're thinking biblically, the more we're thinking, seeing things in clearly more black and white instead of fog, and then all of a sudden we begin to understand more clearly the perceptive will of God for our lives. So let me just summarize quickly, and then we'll, we'll close in prayer. But number one, verse one says, offer your body as a living sacrifice. We're in chapter 12 now, remember. We're not earning our way to God. We're not trying to please God. There's no works attached to this. This isn't law-driven. This is the life of a believer in light of all that Christ has already done on our behalf, being vitally joined to Him. Offer your body a living sacrifice. How do I do that? Stop being conformed to this world. How do I do that? S start being having your mind transformed. And how do I do that? By the renewing of your mind. And that's, that's all the practical things we've looked at, ways that you renew your mind daily with the truth of God and His Word. Let me close by reading you just a, a line from Charles Wesley. He was trying to sum up, I believe, these first two verses very poetically. He says, Strangers and pilgrims here below this earth, we know, is not our place. We hasten through the veil of woe and restless to behold thy face. Swift to our heavenly country move, our everlasting home above. We've no abiding city here, but seek a city out of sight. 
Thither our st steady course we steer, aspiring to the plains of light. Jerusalem, the saint's abode, whose founder is the living God. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for uh, giving practical outworking of this gospel in our lives. Oh, Father, our hearts ache when we see those who have gone astray and heard the, 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 the call of the world and followed its, its, its whistle, its call, and led to a life of sin. Oh, Lord, I pray that you give us each a hunger, a passion, uh, a resolve to be men and women, boys and girls of the Word. And Lord, that Word would have that sanctifying effect on each of our minds, transforming us into the image of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.